Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. I'm glad you're with us. Lots happening. And of course, I'm going to say that every week. Why? Because a lot is happening, I think, especially in a period of historic change. We're going to talk about, though, the SEC allowing trading for 10 different Bitcoin exchange traded funds. I think this is a big, big story. In other words, I'd simplify it like this. Bitcoin's gone mainstream, and I think it's going to make a monster difference, especially as government finances, fiat currencies, all of that stuff comes more to the forefront, and it's going to. So a talk with Joey Temprilli about that Canadian Bitcoiners podcast. Also, we've got to talk, I mean, there's so much more to go when you look at the geopolitical tensions. I mean, they're incredible. We had the CPI numbers coming out of the U.S. I'm going to talk with Mike Levy about that. Um, I've got Andrew Rulin, who's portfolio manager, but asking him specifically, I mean, sentiment how can I blame anyone? Sentiment's going to certainly be negative. You get all these negative stories, especially escalations of the geopolitical uh, problems. And you sort of go, oh my gosh, things are bad. But you can't let it influence all of your portfolio decisions. And I get into that with him. Important stuff on that. Obviously, I, hey, I've got a shocking stat, by the way. We're talking about the Fed pivot. Oh my goodness. Why did it happen? Well, maybe I give you a bit of a hint why that I think will shock you. A great Goofy Award for you. Maybe not even a surprise at the Goofy, but I think there's a context you need. But first, you know, I think it was uh, last week I asked whether the pushback against the diversity, equity, inclusion agenda, DEI, that script our universities, our governments, our institutions, I mean, dominating there, much of the media, as well as many corporations. I wondered if it's marked its peak, given the significant pushback uh, to the blatant anti-Semitism that has been exposed at, you know, big celebrity-style universities like Harvard, MIT, University of Pennsylvania. And I think it also put the spotlight on the lack of merit-based hiring and the open attack on the pursuit of excellence in favor of equality of outcome, the restrictions on free speech, maybe best illustrated, my goodness, Harvard ranking dead last out of 250 universities for free speech and open inquiry. I mean, it wasn't that anyone who cared, anyone who actually believes in merit, anyone who doesn't see the world exclusively through the lens of the oppressed versus the oppressor, I don't think anyone there was surprised. I mean, the cancel culture has been prominent. The so-called woke agenda has even permeated disciplines like medicine and mathematics. Look at the open attacks on anyone who disagrees uh, with that sort of narrative and the de facto censorship that's been, I think, in evidence for well over a decade. It's interesting to think about, well, what changed? Why is it so prominent right now? Why are so many people openly concerned? Why are some in the academic and the business community and the public finally speaking up? Well, I think there's a couple of big reasons for that. I mean, the blatant anti-Semitism that really is just reminiscent of Nazism, you know, on campus has some students fearing for their safety. They, a lot of people think that it's just so far over the line. I mean, the hypocrisy of so many in academia, politics, and business has really been exposed. Two sets of rules for favored minorities like LBGTQ+, and black students, for example, when it comes to their safety, and one for Jewish students. Well, for many, that was simply too much to ignore, especially for people who are Jewish, and they uh, occupy you know, jobs in like news, entertainment, and business. As they found out, there is nothing progressive about hate. I mean, the second aspect, though, that I think has had a profound influence is the aggressive principal objection of uber-successful co-founder of Persian Capital, Bill Ackman, who's given voice to those pushing back against anti-Semitism while encouraging many to step forward. He provided cover for that. 
I mean, he's a Harvard alumni, big-time donor, and he put the spotlight on the DEI ideology and its rejection of things like free speech and merit and excellence in favor of race, which has become a huge focus in the debate over the adoption of DEI. I mean, highlighted by the hiring of Claudine Gay as president of Harvard. I mean, her DEI credentials far outweighed her academic ones in her selection. You know, it's interesting. I was asked after you viewed that Senate testimony by the three presidents of the universities, asked by a friend in business, how high up in the selection criteria for their appointments as various presidents did I think diversity, equality, inclusion played in especially Claudine Gay's selection? And I said, that's all that mattered. There wasn't no other, uh, other criteria. I mean, that became clear in weeks that followed in the charges of plagiarism that really her academic record had not been properly vetted. Why? Because I think that adherence to DEI was so dominant in what mattered. I mean, the message is that in the culture wars, there is no compromise. I think this is very difficult for some people to understand. When purity of one's ideological commitment to dividing the world in this case into the oppressed and the oppressors is the only measure. Nothing else matters, just like when we're seeing with the anti-Israel pro-Hamas protesters. No surprise that the barbarity of the rape and slaughter of even children was given a pass by some. It's the nature of extremism. And it's the extremism that we're seeing in so many other areas, or at least escalating. Climate debate, come on. Government imposed COVID restrictions, which rejected in many cases the essence of science. You're not allowed to ask questions. As I said last week, you know, I did wonder if that was the pushback. This is the big thing. Was the rejection of merit, et cetera, going to be the turning point? Well, would we finally seriously question the rejection of these kinds of things, the changes that they brought? When we say enough of the assault on free speech? Well, my first thought was yes. This could be the peak. Powerful people are finally speaking up, taking a stand. But here's the thing that I haven't heard many talk about. I haven't heard anyone talk about it. I remembered, though, how ideologically committed the adherents are, but just as important, how much money's on the line. Diversity, equality, inclusion, that DEI agenda is a massive industry. You've got staff and administrative positions at universities, human resource departments in government and business. Look at the money the government has spent in this regard. Tens of billions of dollars around the society and diversity and racial sensitivity training in both the public and private sector. They're not giving that up without a fight for both ideological, but I'm pointing out financial reasons. And the stakes couldn't be higher, including our personal freedom, our standard of living. After all, come on, there's only so long you can reject merit in the pursuit of excellence in favor of equal outcome instead of equality of opportunity. I mean, racism, reverse racism, disguised as diversity and inclusion, comes with consequences. I suspect we're just starting to live them. But as I say, I think this is a historic debate. We'll see how it plays out. Hey, just a reminder, and you know what? I better warn you. This is one of many reminders, but I am doing the countdown for the World Outlook Conference. It's coming your way February 2nd and 3rd. I hope to see you there. Mike'sMoneyTalks.ca. Stay with me, though. We've got a lot more planned for you. You know, one of the biggest stories, if not the biggest story in the investment markets this week was the final, I mean, finally, the Security and Exchange Commission uh, okayed 
10 different Bitcoin ETFs. Well, I've got Joey Temprilli with me, the Canadian Bitcoiners. Now, Joey, you get to get a pat on the back because you aren't Johnny come lately to this. You guys have been doing this for ages, for years. You followed this uh, all the way along. So let me just start, you know, forgive the Barbara Walters in me asking you, is this a game changer now? It's a great question. Yeah, Yeah, it's a a great question. I'm I'm thrilled to be here with you and your listeners as always, Mike. Happy New Year to everybody. I I personally believe that it is. And I can't imagine that many people in Wall Street or in big money Bitcoin feel any differently. You know, we spoke a little bit before we started recording about the easiest comp uh, being gold. The gold ETF, GLD, launched in 2004. And while I will admit that for many, the launch of the ETF has been relatively underwhelming, I think we're, we're off almost 8% today, 7% today in Bitcoin. But if you look at GLD from 04 to about 11, 12, when the tech you know, insanity started, maybe you could argue that, GLD and gold did a 4X, about 400 all the way to almost 2000, 1900, 2000, something like that. So I, I would say to people who are you know, saying it's not a game changer based on the first, you know, what are we yeah. at here? I, I was going to say 48 Two days, hours. Yeah, exactly. yeah, but you know what, though? It's not even really because TradFi markets are only open half the day, right? They're on bankers hours at best. And I would say that there's plenty of time for this to rebound, let's say, um, and become the game changer. That I think a lot of us believe it is so much, so much value being unlocked in Bitcoin here because of an ETF launch uh, of this nature. 10, as you mentioned, different providers tons of races in you know in terms of lowest fees in terms of advertising it's been a lot of fun i'm looking forward to seeing what the next you know 12 to 18 months has in store actually uh, just to add what you've just said it's like an economic uh, uh, case study in that the benefits of competition to the consumer so you're right when you've got 10 they've got to figure out how to differentiate yourself and i i think <laughs> we'll see it in terms of lower fees for example you know, it's it's always of benefit, uh, contrary to what some of our political heroes say. It's always of benefit to get competition. But this is like a, just a instant real world example. Like they're all figuring out, OK, we're all been OK in this market. How are we going to separate ourselves? And yeah. as I say, the first thing that jumped out at me is no fees, you know, no or fees. reduce fees or no fees and reduce fees are outstanding. I won't bore your listeners with the details, but you can Google this if you're a listener of this program and maybe not familiar with Bitcoin and specifically Bitcoin development. One of the asset, uh, excuse me, one of the ETF providers has pledged to donate some percentage of their management fees to what is typically referred to in the space as open source development projects. And so I believe the first three beneficiaries of that are OpenSats, which is a Bitcoin develop, uh, development mm-hmm. um outreach program, basically support program. Open source developers don't get paid, Mike, as, as you probably know and your listeners know. Uh, the other is the Human Rights Foundation, Alex uh, Gladstein and others working with that organization over the years. The third one escapes me at the moment. It's been a busy few days, but even things like this, right? You really do have to do some work in convincing Bitcoiners to, what is, what is the word here? To become nodes for the ETFs. Many times in, my, in the last three years or four years or five years, going back to when I first started buying Bitcoin, People ask me, how, how can I buy? Before it was use whatever exchange Canadians can use and get Bitcoin. Now, mm-hmm. if you're a little less willing to take that jump, you can buy the ETF in your TFSA, your RSP, whatever, or your home savings account. You know, I don't know how many people have outputs for all these three things in Canada these days, but let's pretend you do. Th- these, these Bitcoiners now are able to make judgments about which ETF is the best one, even if they're not going to buy it. 
their father might, their brother, their yeah. aunt, their uncle, their sister. And so I think these companies are fighting not only for new assets uh, in the in the um, under the umbrella that these ETFs will, will will now have available, but also they're trying to win the hearts and minds of people who have been in Bitcoin for a long time. Some great first steps, and I think there's many more great ones to come. The opening up for the average individual, I hate that term, right? Who's a, I, I'm my average. I, okay, everyone <laughs> is different because I'm definitely an average person. But, you know, that hasn't been a Bitcoin uh, follower to any degree. They, they see it, but would like exposure. I think this is just it. I mean, it's low cost to get involved through any ETF, but low cost, it's tax efficient, uh, liquidity, you know, oh, buy, sell, no, I guess it's taken the mystery out. People have a lot more affinity for how stocks move and ETFs on the stock market. You know, they do have familiarity with something like a a GLD or in silver SLV. You know, I mean, that list is a long one now. I I just think this opens up a marketplace. And the fact, by the way, that it drops on the announcement, I mean, God, nobody in markets is surprised that you buy on the rumor and you sell on the news. (laughs) And and if you're buying it, there will be people who are there to trade. I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to people who want it to be a portion of their portfolio, maybe worried about government and fiat currencies, uh, maybe geopolitical, maybe like the, uh, the ease of like if I'm in Singapore and I've got Bitcoin and, I've got, and I'm in Toronto and I got Bitcoin, it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, that's the I think one of the biggest drawbacks to gold is portability. You know, I, I'm, you know, we like gold. We like a position in gold on this show, but it's the portability. Like, yes, sir. gee, I've, I've accumulated, <laughs> accumulated 100 pounds of gold. Well, that's not easy to transport. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. No shoebox is going to come with you over the border. It's interesting. You know, you mentioned there the the sort of fog of trust being removed from the asset. Yes. I, I believe this as well. I've, I've talked about this on our show quite a bit. And not all my, my colleagues and peers in Bitcoin agree, but I think this really does change what the top of the funnel looks like for a lot of people. I'll give you an example. Oh. When you look at Bitcoin Twitter and, you know, love it or hate it, Twitter X is where a lot of people go for their top of funnel moment for almost anything. Mm-hmm. You want to learn yep. a bit about what happened in the NHL or the ETF market or whatever. You may go to Google and wind up on Twitter first. The top of the funnel for Bitcoin used to look like have fun staying poor, laser eyes, memes, uh, you know, all sorts of maybe yep. things not quite shareable with polite company uh, from time to time. It's difficult to convince people who are already skeptical of an asset because of the nature of the asset. You know, this it's kind of intangible qualities and the decentralization and what is it backed by? Well, energy, things like this that you yeah. and your listeners know, know enough about. That was the old top of the funnel. Now the top of the funnel is the person who's been handling your finances for 20 years. You go to the bank, go to the back branch office, and the same person who's been uh, peddling mutual funds to you and your family for the better part of two or three decades, or maybe longer in some cases, depending on where you are and who you are. Now, this person is um, helping you at the top of the funnel. To me, one of the biggest hurdles to this uh, group of wealth that ETFs provide is that we, didn't, we weren't able to break the trust barrier for a lot of people. Yeah. And I think that was a fair criticism of uh, Bitcoin and, and even crypto as well for a long time. That, that's, al- that's almost entirely gone now. And you, know, you, you mentioned there that you have a position in gold and Money Talks has been supportive of that. I think that's, that's a fair position to take. I believe this is a better asset than gold for you know many reasons. But the thing that I, I do like about the advertising that started so far, I believe it was Van Eck, whose ticker for their ETF is HODL, H-O-D-L. So if it's not Van Eck, my, my apologies. But whoever is running that ticker uh, has an ad out now, Mike, that's about 15 seconds long that talks directly about government debasement of currency. Imagine a year ago having a major you know trillion-dollar asset manager talking about 
protect yourself from government to basement with Bitcoin. It was unthinkable, and now it's a reality. Top of the funnel yeah, they- has changed, and it's changed in a positive way. Well, I think they all have been listening to Money Talks. I, I'm going to be taking full credit for not being late to that party. In fact, I don't know if there's a, a stronger comprehension proponent, certainly not in the media, of how that process has been for unfolding sure. like, and, and the evidence that we go with. But, you know, the other thing that you bring up, though, is that, uh, you know, it's sort of like um, this whole sphere now gets to borrow from J.P. Morgan's credibility. You know, yeah. brand names in the financial field, no matter what we think of them, but you sort of go, well, come on, if BlackRock's is involved, it can't be that bad. Despite (laughs) what's hilarious is one of the great stories is Larry Fink, the head of BlackRock, calling Bitcoin uh, a fraud and all of those things. You couldn't have been more uh, demeaning of Bitcoin. Oh, yeah, by the way, we're going to be part of this. You know, I I just thought that was one of the great about, this guy should be in politics. Incredible. Although he's BlackRock. When you spin that fast, you need a neck brace after, but not Larry. (laughs) <laughs> but but they will borrow the credibility because now you'll be buying through your brokerage firm or not necessarily, but, you know, the brokerage firm. But these names are attached to it now. And I think that really, whether people in the Bitcoin sphere understand the significance, I can sure tell you confidence. Mm-hmm. Number one issue on our show is declining confidence. Confidence plays a monster role. I think uh, they've got the SEC's blessings, for example, right yeah. now. They've got these major firms involved, major ETF firms too. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a different world now. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You bring up a few points there. Let's let's uh, double click on a couple of them. The borrowing of trust from BlackRock is important. It's funny that people who trust BlackRock almost know nothing about them. I mean, they might be yeah. the least trustworthy institution on the planet at this point. Maybe I don't know. They're definitely in the running, so that's fun. But they do bring legitimacy and staying power. And one thing that the SEC knows is that. They are not long for this world the same way BlackRock, Van Eck, et cetera, are long for this world. These guys yep. are multi-generational thinkers, not four years at a time thinkers. And Gensler has proven himself to be, um, again, I'll search for some diplomatic terminology here. He's proven himself to be, he's wavered a few times on this. Everyone's <laughs> seen the clips of him at MIT talking about how Bitcoin is this great thing, not a security. And yet here he is now on the day of the approval you know, sort of uttering his last gasp, you know, the soft whimper of the overruled SEC chairman. We don't approve of Bitcoin, even if we approve of the ETF. Thanks, Gary. Nobody asked you. Yeah. The confidence thing in Bitcoin is interesting. And I think that what you'll see from asset managers are some of the stats that you, some of the stats and figures and um, sort of important things to consider and keep in mind when you talk about investing in Bitcoin, as far as stuff like volatility. Bitcoin, famously volatile, famously, right? The, the red candles, uh, come just as often and just as hard as the green candles. It's never going to stop, I don't think, at least not in the foreseeable future, ETF or not. Now, here's a stat for you that I think you're going to start to see more and more. You're sitting down. I don't know if Grant and Dustin are sitting down. I hope they are. If you had, Mike, a 98% USD allocation and a 2% Bitcoin allocation, mm-hmm. you could pick any four-year period since Bitcoin's inception, you'd be beating the S&P. How's that yeah. sound? Does that sound good to you? And what's the management fee on that, on 98% cash? I'll tell you what it is. It's zero. At 2% Bitcoin, you can hold that in ETF. You could buy it on Coinbase. You do whatever you want. But the fact of the matter is that the volatility in Bitcoin has worked great. It's been very, very positive and made a lot of people a lot of money over the 13, 12 years, maybe a little less if you want to talk about really how long it's been a liquid market for a lot of people. And Volatility works in your favor when you when you size correctly, when you consider, you know, that every red candle is not a sell immediately event. 
And I think you're going to see a lot of asset managers start to reference these things that we've been saying on Twitter, by the way, for a long time that you and I have talked about the times mm-hmm. we've spoken, things like this, but they're going to become more and more well-known. And I think the next question you have to answer is, what's this mean for the dollar and its position in portfolios? What does this mean for, for treasuries and bonds and their position in portfolios? The 60-40 portfolio is an interesting kind of it's, – it's kind of a scale tipper, right? There was a long time when you needed 60-40 allocation to protect yourself. They're supposed to move inversely, bonds and, and equities, but they really haven't been doing that no. as well as they used to. And there's a lot of doubt in the U.S. debt market, isn't there? That There just wasn't even two years ago. You know, these bond auctions make news on Twitter because there's no bid. Uh, and, and I just think like, is this something that a lot of retirees want to bank on? You know, do you want to bank on the White House announcing one day, Friday after the bell, that they're considering taking some portion of those seized Russian assets to rebuild Ukraine? They may not suffer from that immediately, but pensioners who rely on those bonds might. People who want to be in fixed income might. They don't have these, your best interests are not at the heart of a lot of these things. And Bitcoin takes away a lot of that counterparty risk. Long term, I think this becomes a bigger part of the picture for a lot of people. Well, again, now we're validating or verifying, you know, with data, that part you're saying about it uh, reduces risk, that it actually enhances the portfolio performance. Mm -hmm. That I'm starting to sense, and I know you guys have been talking about it for a a few years now, but I'm now seeing it more for lack of a better term, mainstream, better understood because let's say it's data-driven. Well, the data's there much more clearly now than say people would have, maybe they weren't looking, but say three years ago, four years ago. And and you're right about the correlation. The 60-40 has had a very difficult time. We had the huge decline in bonds. Oh, and stocks. That wasn't <laughs> what that, that portfolio was sort of predicated on. So two, 2022 was a brutal year. And that, that's exactly why I think this is a topic um, you know, I recommend going to the Canadian Bitcoiners, a topic to explore. It's going, I mean, it's here now. You know, let, let me just say that. This is going to be a much more prominent sort of area of discussion. And Joey, I want to thank you for your continual support of our show to bring your expertise and interest in this uh, to our audiences. And we were doing that when we were learning how to spell Bitcoin with you. <laughs> so uh, I think we're a little further along. I'm a little further along, but uh, no, much appreciated, Joey. I hope so. And uh, don't forget, Mike, as long as my wife is sick of hearing me talk, I'll come on your air anytime. I need to get this out to somebody. So this is perfect. Great. Thanks, Joey. All eyes on Thursday were, of course, on the U.S. inflation numbers. Why? Because that, of course, is setting the stage for whether you're going to get lower rates, when you're getting lower rates, all of that kind of thing. And it's kind of interesting because we have the core inflation number, I think, disappointed. It was at 3.9 percent, slightly above what was expected, though. And you had just your sort of general uh, CPI also went up. We're still above the targets. I mean, 3.4 percent for the year over year, as I say, core higher. I want to bring in Mike Levy on this. Mike, as I said, I think it disappointed the markets to some degree. I mean, I think the expectation was inflation was under control uh, more than that, let's say, or or closer to the Fed's target. So, again, uh, that's going to be interpreted, I think, by some as to be kind of negative for that aggressive interest rate cut scenario. And, Mike, I'm hearing, like both sides, I'm hearing some of the analysts at some of the major U.S. banks, and they're pretty happy with the number. And then I'm taking a look at other analysts, and they're saying, hey, wait a minute, this isn't coming down 
<clears throat> pardon me, like we thought it might, but uh, look, it was uh, nowhere near the 6.5% rate at the end of last year. So yeah. certainly it is progress, but uh, I don't know, as you say, that it's progress that's enough to make people really, really happy. And I think we've got to differentiate between uh, the actual CPI and the core inflation because there's a big difference there also. Well, especially when you consider, you look at those numbers, and I think it was 73% of their inflation challenge comes from shelter, like one direction, you know, 73%. So really, should the Federal Reserve keep rates up just to try and do something with shelter because it doesn't have much impact? You know, higher rates don't have, people still have to live somewhere, rents still go up if the costs go up. So yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you that, but, it, and I guess no one's saying that those rate cuts are off the table. They're just saying the timing may be you know, that they may be pushing them back a little bit, you know, it was getting pretty optimistic that we'd see something in the next month and a half, like into March, you know, kind of thing. I'm reading, uh, you know, more and more people saying, no, I think it's going to be later, you know, in the second quarter. Well, Mike, there's a couple things there. Um, first of all, um, JP Morgan, uh, asset management, um, they uh, came out with a statement uh, after the uh, numbers were, um, released this morning, uh, saying the progress on inflation since June 2022 has been remarkable. The bottom line is that the most likely path for inflation from here is not upwards or sideways, but rather down, and that's good news for Americans. Meanwhile, I'm in the U.S., we're visiting, and um, we're in California, and uh, if you want to know what boots on the ground are compared to statistics and numbers from the government, uh, you're seeing all sorts of the impact of inflation. Um, there is a shortage of people working because there just aren't people to work. The unemployment rate's about 3.7%, and that's like having no unemployment. Um, you have salaries that are way higher than the basic core salaries that we've seen over the years. In a service station that I go into, uh, you go into the convenience store to either pay cash for your gas or maybe pick up some snacks or something. In Canadian funds, there's a sign. It doesn't say in Canadian funds. A sign in the window. Uh, cashiers wanted. $20 an hour to start, plus yeah. $27 an hour. I, Mike, if that isn't inflationary, and now I'll bring Canada back in, nothing is. I think wages are going to prove to be a very serious roadblock to really tempering inflation. Well, again, it's one of the cross currents. You know, I mean, that's what we've said all along. When you look at different sectors, they clearly had a much stronger decline than others. Some actually move forward, you know, that kind of thing. So there's a, an important stat that you're mentioning. It's the wage and the employment situation, which is still very strong in the U.S. You know, that would mitigate against rate cuts. But clearly the market still thinks they're coming. But it's an example of, man, you look around, you can find evidence to support whichever position you want. Inflation's not under control. Inflation is under under control or getting there, you know, it just, and that's because the economy is huge and diverse, lots of government intervention, the list, lots of central bank intervention, obviously. So lots of stuff to talk about within that. But uh, as you say, your own anecdotal experience, you look around, you see those wages and the help wanted sign. I hear the same thing in different parts of the country. So yeah, I guess that's going to be the backdrop. And uh, hopefully you'll be here with me to discuss on your next trip. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, you know, just sort of one more thing. When you're in a hotel, a major, major Marriott hotel, 
and you're going for lunch with your family and the restaurant is closed and you ask the question, but you know the answer. They can't find staff. Well, they're going to find staff. They're just going to have to pay more for them. Now, generalize that across the broad economy, across the broad story. And I think uh, shelter, as you're talking about, and wages are going to be ju just areas where they're going to have to fight to get that inflation number down. Our reporter on the ground, our intrepid reporter, Michael Levy, traveling North America to bring us the latest. Mike, have a terrific week. Uh, you too, Mike. Thanks. Time now for the quote of the week, as I alluded to up front in this broadcast. You know, obviously, big subjects like merit are coming to the forefront. How are we hiring? Why are we hiring? That kind of stuff. And that is the context for my quote of the week from God Saad, incredibly successful author, Parasitic Mind, which has just returned to the top of the academic uh, book list on Amazon. But he's also a professor at Concordia University. And he says in quotes, professors are getting hired or promoted based on their skin color or gender orientation. It is DEI that allows such violations of individual dignity to take place. Imagine that in the 21st century, universities are openly posting job announcements that restrict the application pool to people of a certain skin hue. This is allowed because, in quotes, past historic grievances. No, you do not address past grievances by committing the exact same bigotry, albeit on a different class of acceptable people. Oh, you are white and heterosexual and male? Sorry, asshole. No professorship for you. As I say, it's an incredible topic that's finally making its way to the uh, mainstream public and well overdue. I want to talk about portfolios for a second and, and our investment decisions in a world that, come on, don't we feel like we're inundated, knock with stuff every day? I mean, what's the latest geopolitical? I know I talk a lot about that, but I should talk a lot about that. You know, what's the latest uh, political thing? All, all of those things come at us. And I thought I'd ask Andrew Rulin of Integrated Wealth Management to talk a little bit about managing money in this kind of environment. Now, Andrew, we'd have to forgive people for being having pretty gloomy outlook on what they see going on. They're told the Canadian economy is going to slow down by everybody, you know, as, as that's just one side of the coin. But of course, the geopolitical risk is way up there. And, you know, if that's not depressing, I don't know what is, you know, there's a big list and the cost of living, you know, oh, great, our inflation rates coming down, but that still means the rising prices are, are still with us, not at the same rate. I, and I, as you can tell, I could give you a long list What's it like managing people within that? Because I would assume their feelings start getting involved in decision-making. The biggest negative there is with investing is our emotions. We're literally hardwired to run from danger. And that was great when we had to run away from woolly mammoths and saber-toothed tigers. But it's the exact opposite of what we need to do with investments because risk is lowest when price is lowest but price is always lowest when fear is highest. So our human nature works against us. And realistically, the Money Talks audience, I would suggest, is probably better informed as to what's actually going on in the world. They don't just have their head down or, or listening to Facebook or you know whatever CBC Nightly News you know, happens to tell them. They're better informed, and I would say, look, they are much more far-sighted than the average person, mm -hmm. so they can see some of these challenges coming, and that can really, really cloud your, your judgment when it comes to what should I do with the investments. 
But I, I would think a couple things come out of that. Um, and again, you're on the ground, you're talking to people every day, you know, integrated wealth management team is talking to people. And I'm just thinking, uh, what worries me is people panic, as you alluded to right up front, they get stampeded in, you know, and we saw that in the sort of semi tech bubble coming in, you know, when my, my favorite joke was, if we all get a Peloton in our bathroom, it'll justify the price, you know, so we get in at that side, and then we get out, you know, then we panic out. Uh, you know, then, but we don't get back in when value starts presenting itself. Exactly. This, this harkens back to some of my formative years in, in the business 20 plus years ago, reading Jim Dines, thanks to hearing him on, yes. on Money Talks. And, you know, we need to ride the herd without becoming one of them. So we need to actually follow trends that emerge, but not lose our independent thinking and not, not buy into the narrative that is driving driving the masses in because then we just end up being, you know, the greater fool instead of selling into strength and then buying back during extreme weakness. But it's difficult. Oh, uh, very much so. I mean, when emotions take over and I've certainly made those mistakes in the market, you know, I I talk with Victor a lot about this because uh, it's a lesson I had to learn. I'm an investor. I'm a longer mid long-term investor. Why do I start thinking like a trader sometimes? You know, I, let's say I'm going to take a position into something and uh, why I'm trying to scalp the last dollar on the bottom, but I'm prepared mm-hmm. to hold it five years as if that's going to be the determining factor, whether that was a good idea or not. I mean, right. it's all of this. I mean, investing in, I'm glad you brought up Jim, Jim wrote the book, Mass Psychology. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of, uh, you know, any investor's sort of list of books that they should read. Because mm-hmm. we're all subject to it, you know, and, and I mean, in this event, this kind of a time frame, because there's so much change going on, it must be especially uh, troublesome for people. It, it is so. And besides the, you know, kind of stampeding into things, there's the, the whole, there's the fear of missing out, which is stampeding yep. into things. And there's the fear of loss of capital, which is on the other side. And one of the things that is, is a big challenge it, is that with our core strategy, which is the dividend grower strategy, it's, it's focused on companies that have consistently raised their dividends and have excellent dividend coverage that produces the best, quint, the top quintile of long-term performance and the lowest quintile of long-term volatility, but people get impatient with it. And so, yeah. Well, I, and then I was looking at the performance, by the way, of that portfolio you do, you know, mm-hmm. and it's actually a good example for what you're saying, because you're looking, okay, what am I looking for? You yeah. know, and uh, dividends, solid growth, you know, mm-hmm. earnings per share growth. Well, it did damn well, mm-hmm. you know, in a very volatile environment. Well, considering, yes. And I mean, we don't look at, at the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ or even the Dow or the TSX as an appropriate benchmark, because we're not invested in all of those different types of companies. But, you know, the, the place where we did the best last year, actually, in relation to, to an appropriate benchmark, was in the core and explore strategy. So because of the active management component that we bring into it, we actually did just under 12% last year, whereas the commodity index was minus seven. So that's, that's really good outperformance. We don't expect that every year, but it's because of the active management component. And it's really, it's like, you don't leave your emotions at the door, but you let your emotions inform what you should be doing, which is the opposite of what the crowd wants to do. Yeah. I just think so important for people to hear. And by the mm-hmm. way, that's why I'm glad you guys are doing a seminar, a webinar, sorry, mm-hmm. webinar on this coming up on Tuesday. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, 
These are the things that, and we could ask Victor about that, who's been involved, or Mike Levy about this, who's been involved, Ozzy, of course, you know, who's been involved like you have for decades. And mm -hmm. it still comes back to these fundamental lessons, you know, mm -hmm. these fundamental errors that we make. And as I say, I've never suggested otherwise that I've, I've learned way too many of them the hard way. You know, that wasn't first time out. And I've, I remember asking myself this, and I'm old now, so I mean, I've God, I started investing in markets over 50 years ago. But I'm, I just remember, how often are you going to have to learn this one, Mike? You know, mm -hmm. haven't we been in this movie before? You know, and as you say, it's an environment that begs those kinds of emotion-driven mistakes. Well, I'll tell you, uh, losses are the most painful. We know that scientifically, but also just anecdotally and from, from everybody's personal experience, I'll say. Yeah. And so I think you have to lose money on certain things uh, enough times that it kind of gets through the yeah. ego. <laughs> yeah. It's not through your thick skull because you know intellectually what led to it. It's, it's, it's about putting the desire to be right over getting it right. Yeah, I think that's an important point. I'm going to throw in fear though too. Mm -hmm. That actually taking the loss addresses some fear in your body, if you know what I mean. Like that's such a painful painful experience, you know, yep. uh, for some people. That's why traders know. They learn about that. They control. I mean, you listen to Victor. He says his success is 100% about managing his risk. It's not about getting it right. It's about managing risk. You know, uh, obviously, you let your winners run and your losers. You have a point. You have that. All of that kind of discipline. And I suspect that's the kind of thing you're going to be dealing in the webinar. That's certainly going to be a part of it. And it's also going to be looking at kind of the bigger picture landscape of mm -hmm. what's happening geopolitically. Also, frankly, how wrong the uh, the chattering classes got it last year, what I like to call the uh, the financial consensus complex, uh, not dissimilar to the military mm -hmm. industrial complex, right? Where an idea becomes popular and because it becomes popular, it becomes more popular. So it's just, it's literally tribal or, uh, or in-group behavior in the financial classes. So we even, even though we need to look at the financial information providers for information, don't look there for wisdom. Yeah, and my goodness, do we have, why do they all work at the central bank? No, I'm just kidding. Why <laughs> do they all work at the finance committee? But you're absolutely right. It's going to be quite, it's, it's a huge background. It's, uh, that's why I say this uh, subject matter is very important. So I, I just want to remind people, though, so you're doing that Tuesday, 6 o'clock Pacific, 7 o'clock Mountain, you know. Yes. And they can just go uh, to book their place because you should book your place because there's always limited for this kind of stuff technologically. So yep. just go to moneytalks.ca. Is that e the easiest thing? Mike'smoneytalks.ca, pardon me. Mike'smoneytalks.ca. Yeah, It'll be right I believe, there. Yeah, believe it's on the homepage already. And uh, you can also go to our website to find out more about us and just uh, about the firm generally. And at the bottom of our homepage is a registration um, um, gadget as well, widget as well. But yeah, just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. That always works. Yeah. And plus, of course, integrated wealth management, integrated wealth management. Andrew, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. Good to see you. Time now for this week's shocking stat. I'm sure you noticed there's been a huge focus on the Federal Reserve's about face on interest rates. I mean, come on. It was throughout November, right into December 1st. Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve were saying that any talk of rate cuts was premature. Then what caught the markets off guard? Well, just about everyone. By mid-December, Jerome Powell and the Reserve did an about face, projected three rate cuts in 2024. 
and the markets went further on the dovish tone and forecast six rate cuts. But it was a mystery why. I mean, the Federal Reserve provided no explanation as to why such a sudden change of heart. On Money Talks, I chatted with Michael Levy and Victor Adair. We said that maybe the employment numbers and the wage growth, while they're still strong, maybe there's something else in the background we're not aware of because they, they were not making a case for cutting rates. I mean, we speculated, like Lance Roberts did last week, that perhaps there's something in the system that we're not aware of that would justify the about face. And we still don't know, but it provides context for this week's shocking start, uh, stat. As does a quote from 2019, it was by then-retired Newark Federal Reserve President Bill Dudley, who stated regarding the upcoming 2020 election, in quotes, it falls within the Fed's purview because Trump's re-election arguably presents a threat to the U.S. and the global economy, end of quote. In other words, the Federal Reserve felt it was justified, indeed, its mandate to interfere through monetary policy in the elections. I mean, that's shocking enough, given political interference and in central bank decisions uh, lead to catastrophic outcomes relentlessly everywhere it's been tried. I mean, if you want to get hyperinflation and the significant devaluation of purchasing power of currencies, well, just have political influence over the central bank. So with that in mind, with the presidential election officially kicking off with Iowa this week, I find these statistics, courtesy of James Fishback, chief investment officer, co-founder of Azoria Partners, he said this. By the way, they're both interesting, but I find shocking. At the Federal Reserve, there are 10 Democrat economists for every Republican one. Think about that, 10 to 1. And while you're at it, consider for the 2020 election, Federal Reserve staff donated $900,000 to Democratic candidates versus only 30000 to Republican ones. That's 30 to 1. I mean, come on. There's no direct evidence linking the dramatic pivot in the Fed's position on interest rates to the makeup of the Federal Reserve economists. But come on, that's not a stretch. I'm going to bring Ozzy Jurek in right now, and you can find him at ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, I got a little list for you today, you know, and one of the things that, of course, we've been talking about is the need for more supply. I mean, everybody seems to agree that doesn't seem to be uh, like a political, politicized statement. We got a lot of people coming in, huge immigration, huge temporary visas coming in. We need supply. And yet, you know what, I'm starting to pick up on, and you've been warning us about this, you know, certain developments getting canceled. Well, can't afford much cancellation. And it's right across the country. You know, we have several developers backing off construction in Toronto. And, and but it's not too surprising. I mean, in sales are often over the 10-year average. We are down between 23 and 40% in sales over the 10-year average, so fewer sales. And at the same time, we had prices increases. The costs are increasing. And so developers are backing off, not just in Toronto. In Kelowna, Mission Group shelved two uh, residential high-rise towers. In Prince George had an outright building slump uh, last year. So everybody is very, very cautiously on the market ahead. Yeah, and as I say, it's a time when there is, uh, you know, a need for that. I'm hoping, by the way, that the perception, and, and again, we've been chatting about this, that we don't have to wait for the banks to officially lower their mortgage rates, you know, when someone wants to come and buy. We've seen it in the bond market, especially the five-year bond. And as you told us, uh, I think it was a week ago, you said, oh, don't listen to that. Listen to the whisper rates, you know. And we got people out there at 5%, slightly under. Yeah. 
that that's a pretty darn good rate. That may rescue at least some of, on the demand side in, in certain areas, obviously. Yeah, we've got to remember that in 50 years, 45 out of those 50 years, the mortgage rates were over 5%. It was only those five years from 2016 on. So let's just go back to And And you know what, Mike? People are actually saying, okay, that's okay. It's not going to go any lower. We're not going to see 2% again. And they're actually, we hear on the ground, they're out there in the shopping, uh, in the open houses, and they're out there making offers. Yeah, and we saw that last, I think it was last March, when they didn't raise rates and everybody started to think, oh, they're going down. And we did get a bump. You know, of course, it was spring also, and I know that, but we did get it. I think it was part of a psychological bump. But by the way, you know how you can tell if somebody's like an old guy? Because when you talk real estate, they always pop in with, well, I remember having to pay 12% on my mortgage. And I'm I'm looking in the mirror when I say that because I... (laughs) We all, anybody old enough always says stuff like that. But yeah, so that may be, uh, may be a positive on that side of it. But I mean, also building costs. I saw that CBC story that we're talking about a, a Metro Vancouver regional district had an apartment going up in Burnaby, British Columbia, uh, you know, and they've said, you know, they had it, you know, ready to go in 220, but they were planning to build at this time. So it's not a surprise in that way. And their costs have actually doubled. I mean, my yeah. goodness gracious. I mean, I can see somebody who's in the development business going, I don't think so. Well, this is the thing, you know, unfortunately, I guess Churchill said the politician needs the ability to foretell what is going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, and then to have the ability afterwards to explain why it didn't happen. Right? And so here we have Mr. Eby blaming the industry, saying they can't do it. We're going to do it. Yeah. Well, what's government going to do is Property taxes in Toronto just were announced. They're up 10%. And oh, by the way, they also threatened the federal government. If they didn't do something on refugees, they want another six. So that's 16%. You see, well, that's outrageous. Wouldn't happen in Vancouver. Hey, we had 10% increase last year, 7% this year. That's 17% in two years. All of these costs on development charges, 20,000 per suite here. And then the industry is to blame. The industry is saying with their feet, we're not building. Well, and the other side of that, sorry, I have to bring this up. I won't dwell on it. But then we should play, uh, you know, some B-roll of politicians saying how much they care about, uh, you know, affordable housing. It's not just the absolute cost when you try and get it, but it's to be able to stay in that home, you know, uh, you know, and property taxes. And, you know, I've chronicled some of them. I mean, I think Windsor was 14 percent, you know, as an example. But, you know, you go across the country. But your other points, very important. Don't just look at one year. Look at what's happened over, say, two to three years in the property tax, and it's just made it darn expensive, let alone a rising mortgage rate that we're getting. It gets, you know, we're going to have, I mean, that's obviously what economists are saying. We're going to get repercussions, but let's note it because politicians, I think, talk out of both sides of their mouths when it comes to their deep, unbiting, you know, religious-like concern for affordability because it ain't there. Hey, Ozzy, let me just finish with one very quick and we'll go we'll do more in depth at another time. But, you know, the commercial property market ain't faring any better either. It's more difficult, in fact. Well, Toronto is up now to, in downtown, 17.5% vacancy rate and in the suburbs up to 20%. And, and Vancouver is, has raised uh, to 12% just in a couple of years. So the huge pressure, people working from home and so on. Um, and the, the problem is also is A class versus B class. Some of those mm-hmm. vacancy rates are even higher. 
Well, and again, the ripple through implications that we're seeing maybe more prominently in the States, but it's also a warning sign. But that's exactly why people should go to ozbuzz.ca. You know, all they have to do is throw in their name, you know, tell us where to send the Ozbuzz, you know, weekly newsletter. You just have to put your name in. They know where to send it. But you get a chance, of course, to elaborate a lot more of which this is the backdrop, by the way, for your World Outlook speech. I mean, I don't think there's ever been more meat on the bone to talk about. The challenge will be here's I've got 52 really important things that we should be aware of. I don't have time for 52. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. As I say, you're not sitting there. I wonder what to talk about. No. So that's going to be great at the World Outlook. Yeah, and our motto this year in our company is clarity. We've yeah. got to get, sift through it and come up with our own clarity. But I want to leave you with this thought from Mark Twain, which really resonated with me, Mike. Politicians and diapers must be changed often and for the same reason. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Go to ozbuzz.ca. Let's go to the trading desk now live with Victor Adair. Vic, uh, there's so much coming across my plate, but the one that I still think is underappreciated is the level of geopolitical risk. Uh, You know, whether we're talking about Ukraine and escalations there, to be clear, threats of nuclear retaliation are up there in the uh, forefront again. Obviously, we can talk about what's going on with Israel, Gaza, Hamas, but also you go into the uh, Houthis attack on the Red Sea shipping lanes, which are profound in terms of uh, costing volume, sending ships around the horn, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, And I just think it's underappreciated. Well, it's certainly underappreciated in the market. I mean, the stock market doesn't seem to care. Uh, yeah. we're, we're here at at or near all time highs in the in the leading indices. Uh, the Toronto market is at 20 year highs. And just by the way, on stock markets, Shanghai is at a four year low. Interesting as to how things yeah. are playing out in China. But yeah, I mean, gold this week closed lower than it closed last week. I mean, it, it did have some reaction to the American and British attacks on the Houthis. Crude oil closed this week lower than it closed last week. So I'm puzzling over why is the market not more stressed out, as it were, because of this rising geopolitical stress? Yeah, we got a bump in the in the crude, you know, but sure. the potential is for so much more. And as you say, the market seems to be giving a big yawn to it. Um, you know, and again, I'd make a distinction between the paper market for oil and the fisc- physical market. But I'm just saying that the market, as you so rightly point out, is sort of giving it a semi-yawn. And I'm going, holy smokes, don't you see what's going on out there? So what would your, be your guess why? I mean... You know, usually gold likes an excuse, uh, stocks like an excuse, you know, all of that stuff. Well, let me be clear. I mean, on was it Thursday night, I guess, our West Coast time is when the, the Brits and the Americans uh, hit some targets in North Yemen. Uh, I, I gold was up 40 bucks. I mean, gold did sure. react as you would expect, but it hasn't sustained it. Crude oil was up and hasn't sustained it. So uh, I wonder, and I saw this one little item where Italy had promised more aid to Ukraine, but they tied it to Ukraine entering into some negotiations. And I'm wondering if there's folks out there, you know, that know more mm-hmm. about these things than I do, that are, are thinking, okay, this may be as bad as it gets. And of course, the public is picturing this getting a lot worse, but maybe the big money is seeing that, okay, we're, we're, we're actually going to back away from the, from the abyss, as it were, and, uh, you know, you sell the panic. 
I think it's a, a great point, but uh, let me keep going. I want to talk a little bit more about energy, and I'm proud to say on this, the, on this show at the World Outlook Conference for three years, we talked about this problem with uranium. Problem being, hey, if you want to solve or reduce emissions dramatically, there's only one road to go, and that's nuclear. And, of course, we have a huge undersupply of nuclear, and that's one market that's reflecting that. Yeah, uranium prices hit uh, $100 this week. That's a 16-year high. And when I say uranium, I mean the spot market in physical uranium. Uh, just uh, the, like the go-to uh, flagship, let's say, Cameco. Uh, Cameco is up a 10x, yeah. from, up from $5 to $50 from where it was in the lows of 2020. It's a double from where it was uh, a year ago. Now, and Cameco is one of the two key players, as well as in Kazakhstan, where they're having production problems, you know, to be able to live up to creating enough or making enough uh, uranium available to meet the contracts that they're in. And uh, I think the, the other side of this, which is, I mean, it's pretty easy to see if you look at it. Yes, we're going to have a lot of nuclear reactors and whatnot built, but where the hell are they going to get the uranium to, you know, make these things go? So it's because, you know, after Fukushima, we had mines shut down, you know, there's no capex on, on uranium and the development and so on and so on. It is a supply or lack of supply issue here that's got the uh, uranium market in particular really excited and really on fire. Yeah, it doesn't seem to me there's a secondary supply ready to go. I mean, they used to stockpile it. doesn't seem to be the case to any uh, significant degree. So, again, that'll be a big feature, Vic, at the World Outlook Conference. You'll be talking energy. Uranium, we'll see where it is at that point. I mean, it, you'd think it would take a rest at some point. That chart looks ridiculous right now. So I've, I've always gotten my sort of uh, my caution uh, flag out there, not long-term, not mid-term, but short-term, we'll, we'll have a look. But again, uh, that'll be a topic of conversation at the World Outlook. Yeah, I, I, looking at the World Outlook coming up, I mean, for instance, I mean, this is pretty basic stuff. The price of natural gas in North America is up 50% from where it was a month ago. Why? Because it got cold all of a sudden. Gee, didn't, didn't anybody see that coming? Uh, you know, I was making some notes for my opening speech for the World Outlook Conference about energy, and I'm thinking, you know, energy is everything from people can invest in something like Enbridge, you know, for the dividend, a pipeline company. Yeah. Or... I've been going to Joseph Schachter's conferences over in Calgary for the past few years, and I'm always amazed at the technological advances that are going on in the energy business. You know, over there, mostly, of course, it's on oil and gas, but it just flabbergasts me. So there's such a range of things that people can put their money into from, you know, buying a dividend, paying stock for the dividend to, you know, going out to real cutting edge technology in the energy space. So I'm looking forward to just a dynamite conference. And one last thing, of course, uh, just to remind people, I talked about it earlier with the shocking stat, but, you know, the full election, U.S. election season kicks off in full force, you know, with the Iowa caucuses. Uh, and I call it the silly season, and the season lasts, unfortunately, about eight, nine months, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or I guess, no, it's November election, so it's got to be 10 plus months. But I mean, oh my goodness, the BS is about to flow, but that'll also be back and forth with the market too. So I'm just, I'm just throwing that out to people like myself who don't like to be disrespected. And of course, that's what politicians seem to do for a living is disrespect our intelligence. Uh, I'm in for a tough time, but it's going to be important also for the markets. No kidding. Uh, we're just a few months away and the 
But whatever happens in the American elections is just going to be so important. So, yeah, you know, you got to stay tuned, I guess. There you go. Absolutely, Vic. And they can stay tuned by going to victoradare.ca, victoradare, A-D-A-I-R, victoradare.ca. And of course, we look forward to seeing all of you at the World Outlook Conference. I'm getting excited now, Vic. I mean, the countdown's on. seems like time's going by very, very quickly. So it'll be here before we know it. But come and have a chat with Victor. Look forward to seeing you myself. Uh, and everyone else there. So uh, just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, get your ticket now. Uh, as I say, looking forward to seeing you there, Vic. Thanks, Mike. Look forward to seeing you too. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. I wasn't going to go here, but then when a major government institution is taking on water, it's noteworthy because, of course, our broad context on Money Talks is the declining confidence in government. In this case, I'm talking about perceptions of the police. Now, policing is an incredibly difficult job, a dangerous job. It's a no-win in many situations, especially when politics starts interfering with the police carrying out their duties. Most in the public sincerely appreciate the job our police officers do, but at times it's made far more difficult, as they say, when political considerations take center stage, which creates the perception of two sets of rules. Some protests are okay, for example, including some law-breaking, and some are not. And that brings me to this week's Goofy. As I said, I wasn't going to go there, but I thought because I thought most of us would have seen that video of the reporter from Rebel News, David Menzies, asking Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland as she walks in the street why the Islamic, or Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard had not been designated a terrorist organization as it has been in other Western countries. Now, you have to picture, if you haven't seen it, Mr. Menzies focused on uh, the Deputy Prime Minister as she's walking, and he bumps into a police officer who, officer who makes no effort whatsoever to avoid contacting him. The reporter brushed the police officer and the police officer immediately manhandles, stating he's under arrest for assault. I mean, absurd is not doing it justice. At least three other police officers surround Mr. Menzies, end up handcuffing him, off, ushering him into the police car. To not put too fine a point on it, I personally have never witnessed such an abuse of power by the police, including a blatant fabricated charge of assault, a profound abuse of power, actions that put the entire police force in a bad light. Actually, bad light, I still don't think does it justice, especially when juxtaposed with the reluctance of officers to enforce hate speech laws during anti-Israeli protests that have gripped our cities, shut down traffic. Not many arrests, if any, for the vandalism, disruption of Jewish-owned businesses, highways closed, traffic severely disrupted, which, by the way, has finally forced uh, the police to acknowledge they're not going to allow that to happen on one of the main thoroughfares, uh, Avenue Road, you know, over the 401 Interpass. But, you know, but it's an, a, direct, a direct assault on the rights of law-abiding citizens. I mean, no arrests are made for chanting hate, disrupting shoppers during Christmas, for example. I mean, you know the story. But meanwhile, a reporter for Rebel News is arrested on completely bogus charge of assault because he questioned the deputy prime minister. Now, if you haven't seen the incident, make a point of going to uh, Money Talks tweets. I'm going to post it there again. I mean, you're going to be shocked if you haven't seen it. But to make matters worse, this comes on the heels of another inexplicable, goofy action by the police. As some officers were photographed bringing coffee and donuts to anti-Israeli, pro-Hamas, anti-Semitic protesters. I mean, seriously, say what? Coffee and donuts to the people 
who repudiate Canadian values while use issuing threats directed at a specific group? I know we've had to say this a ton over the last couple of years, and I think it's the tenor of our times, but it's under the headline, you just can't make this stuff up. That's all the time we have this week. And again, as you've been hearing, a reminder, the countdown's now on for the World Outlook Conference. I think you just really enjoy it. It's an enjoyable time to come chat, meet, meet the Money Talks team, but so much more. I mean, so many valuable pieces of information. The track record, is, and that's all I say that really counts in the end, has been spectacular. It'll be interesting. I'm interested in hearing what people have to say about this very challenging environment, where there's a relentless attack on the purchasing power of our currency and our standard of living. You might want to come and check it out. Find out how to protect yourself. Find out what's happened. Get a perspective. All of those kinds of things at the World Outlook Conference, February 2nd and 3rd. And it's easy to do. Just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, click on the events button. You see it right there. I hope to see you there. In the meantime, continue to go to Mike's Money Talks on uh, Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. Join us on Money Talks Tweets. And of course, mikesmoneytalks.ca. I appreciate when you do, and especially appreciate when you recommend it. In the meantime, I hope you have an absolutely spectacular week. Mm-hmm.